You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, here we are in the fifth week of our Lenten sermon series entitled Many Rooms, and we've been studying the Upper Room Discourse, the conversation between Jesus and his twelve disciples towards the end of that final week before the crucifixion and resurrection. And as we enter into today's text, we pick up the conversation from where we left off last week at the beginning of chapter 16. Jesus has told his disciples he's delivered the disturbing news that they're going to be objects of hatred. They're going to be objects of opposition, even perhaps violence. And if that's not enough, as we pick up our passage today, Jesus' initial statements serve to intensify or deepen the crisis they find themselves in. He tells them, again, he reminds them that he is leaving them. So not only do they face a dangerous future, they must move into this future without their trusted leader. And so as we encounter this small band of disciples in this passage this morning, they are stunned. They are devastated. They are demoralized. They are disillusioned. They are terrified. Well, let's move right into the passage. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16, starting at the end of verse 4. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 878 if you'd like to follow along. This passage is theologically rich, profound. It's got a number of twists and turns and some surprises. So let's uh, pray that God would lead us through this. Pray with me. Holy God, Spirit of truth. Speak to us in this time. Teach us in this time. Lead us into this word. And then lead us forth from this word into your world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, listen. Listen to this text as I read it. John chapter 16, starting at the second half of verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own, but will speak whatever He hears. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, because He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. For this reason I said that He will take what is Mine and He will declare it to you. Now, as I see it, there are three major movements to this passage. There's the movement of crisis, 
There's the movement of confrontation, and there's the movement of commissioning. In this passage, we're entering midstream into an ongoing conversation between Jesus and his disciples. The particular focus and and subject of this conversation actually begins earlier in chapter 15, starting at verse 18, and Jesus warns his disciples that they're going to be objects of society's hatred. They're going to be objects of society's persecution. And George helped us with this when he, last week, he characterized that this hatred that Jesus speaks of is a sort of personified force within the culture that seeks to live in abject opposition against God and his purposes. Jesus warns them that this, this force or, or philosophy of opposition is aggressively poised against the community of Jesus and will live out its hatred in brutal acts of persecution. And so we pick up the conversation at the end of verse 4 where Jesus has been saying these things. And then, to make matters worse, he tells them that he's going away. He's returning to the one who has sent him. Jesus is leaving them at the very moment that they're most at risk. At the time that they're most vulnerable. And their response is predictable and quite understandable. They're overwhelmed. They're terrified. They're filled with sorrow. They can't even engage Jesus around where he's going and why they're completely gripped by the situation that they find themselves in. And you can only imagine what's going on in their minds. You can hear them saying, I've left everything for you. I've left my work. I've left my family. I've left any sense of security that I could muster. And I'm only to be left here at the end of the road vulnerable and alone. I've committed my whole life to this one person. I've oriented my whole self for the last three years. Is this how it's all going to end? And into this overwhelming sense of loss and fear and disillusion and dread, Jesus speaks a word of hope. More than that, he promises a gift, a person, an abiding presence, an advocate, a helper, a friend, a counselor. The spirit of truth that will come alongside them, more even will live with them. More even than that, will live within them. Here we notice the message of hope that we hear echoed from the pages of Ezekiel, where Yahweh promises a new spirit, a new heart. Jesus promises his abiding spirit. The incarnation, the word become flesh, which up until now has been embodied in the one person, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, is now being invested in the disciples. And what is the work of this Spirit of Truth, this Holy Spirit, this Advocate? Well, Jesus suggests in this passage that the Advocate's work is the ministry of confrontation. Now, that's a strange oxymoron, the ministry of confrontation. Well, that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, when I go, the advocate will come. And when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to confront this oppositional spirit of the world. The text here says that he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
I actually, I actually prefer the NIV translation here. It says, when the advocate comes, he will convict the world of guilt concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's interesting that in the Greek, the word that is translated here, advocate, has a legal connotation, a bit of a legal overtone. And, and here in this passage, the advocate becomes a prosecutor, putting this world, this, this oppositional spirit on trial. The advocate is seeking a conviction. Well, that begs the question, what is this world guilty of? Well, I'm not quite sure, but whatever it is, it has to do with sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, there are three heavily laden words. Those three words have some baggage they're carrying. They're, they're, they're what I call the trifecta of doom. <laughs> and, there's, and, and there's nothing like the trifecta of doom that unleashes my inner fundamentalist. I mean, you've got to hand it to the advocate here. If you're serious about bringing a conviction... What better to do than to bring out the three big guns of sin and righteousness and judgment? So just, just think, of, think with me for a moment. Reflect on this just for a moment. When you think of sin and righteousness and judgment, what do you think of? Well, if you're like me, you think of sin as associated with bad behavior. And the Apostle Paul gives us great help with this. He has constructed some incredible lists, uh, spectacular lists, of bad behavior, impurity, idolatry, fornication, jealousy, anger, selfishness, envy, drunkenness, and that's the short list. He helped us immensely with thinking about sin as bad behavior. But then there's righteousness. And I naturally associate righteousness with personal righteousness, the notion of living with a moral or ethical code, which can easily mutate into a sense of legalism. And then there's judgment. And I naturally view judgment with a notion of condemnation. In other words, judgment is the justice that is rightly done in relationship to our sin and unrighteousness. But notice here in this text that none of these conventional notions of sin and righteousness and judgment compose the advocate's case against this world. In the advocate's argument, sin is not about bad behavior. Righteousness is not about pursuing an unattainable ethical standard. And judgment is not about the bad news of condemnation as the just reward of a sin-filled life. No, in the advocate's case against this world, sin is referenced to belief in Jesus. Did you notice that? Sin is about not believing, not trusting, not loving, not following in the way of Jesus. Sin is defined as declining the invitation to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that surprising? Now that's a new twist on the conventional notion of sin, don't you think? And I don't know if you encounter this, but it seems that central to the contemporary confrontation or conversation between the church and the world there is this overwhelming preoccupation or concern over personal behavior. On one hand, there's the sense of judgment people experience from holier-than-thou Christians, and on the other hand is the inevitable charges of hypocrisy that the, that the world hurls against the church because its people can't or won't live up to the behavioral standards that the church espouses. 
And I'll warn you right now that if good behavior is really important to you, then you and I should probably never play a round of golf together. <laughs> that game just brings out moments of bad behavior in me, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not dismissing the importance of behavior in our attempt to live Christianly in this world. But here in this passage, as the advocate confronts the world, it seems that Jesus emphasizes belief over behavior. Here in this passage, sin is an issue of where we stand in relationship with Jesus. Where are you placing your trust? Where is your devotion? Who is central in your life? For the disciple, it's Jesus. For the world, not so much. But then there's righteousness. Now, righteousness in this passage seems to be a little more opaque. To me, it's not obvious what Jesus is getting at here, but it seems apparent that the conventional notion of righteousness as living by an ethical code is not in play. Jesus says the world is convicted of guilt about righteousness, get this, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. There is a mystery here. And I'll give you my theory on this, and you can take it or leave it, do with it what you wish, but I think this phrase is a cryptic yet potent foreshadowing of what is about to happen. Events are about to play out, beginning even the very next day, that are going to set in motion something very new, something transformational, something beyond their or our comprehension. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the religious leaders. He's going to be taken before the empire. He's going to be judged a criminal of the state, and then he's going to be brutally murdered, crucified on a cross. And in this act of submission, Jesus is going to absorb the sins of the world and liberate humanity to live in right relationship with the Father. Three days later, Jesus will rise from the grave and conquer death. And in the resurrection, Jesus establishes himself as the risen Lord. You see, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is ultimately concerning the governance of the world. It's about authority. See, the political power of the Roman Empire and the social and spiritual power of the Sanhedrin, these two great powers do not determine the course of history. Jesus is Caesar's Caesar. Jesus is the high priest's high priest. Jesus is Lord of the universe. The final acts of Jesus' life establishes a new world order. The work of God in Jesus Christ is to make things right again to reestablish right relationships and invite us into those. Jesus' death on the cross and his return to life in the resurrection and his return to the Father in his ascension sets the coming kingdom in motion. I believe that's what Jesus means by righteousness here. Well, the final argument in the prosecution's case has to do with judgment. And in this instance, there is the promise of condemnation, but it's not presented in the conventional sense. It's not the bad news of the pending judgment of a fallen humanity, but rather it's the good news 
that the ruler of this world is boundaried under God's authority. That Satan, the personification and energy and impetus and catalyst behind evil, stands condemned. So what does this mean? Has evil been eradicated? Well, no, of course not. It hasn't. We know better than that, for we face evils in various forms every day. We struggle with the evils of addictions and oppression and life-changing illnesses and injuries and betrayal and injustices and abuses. So we know that evil's not been eliminated from our lives. Evil's still at work, still has its way. So what gives? What does this condemnation of which Jesus speaks mean? Well, I believe that what Jesus is saying here to his disciples then and to us today is that while evil persists, that while it ravages and destroys and accuses, that while evil has its malicious effect in our lives, it will not have the last word. The addictions we suffer, the enormous losses we grieve, the injustices that we experience, these will not be the things that define us nor do they determine our destiny. Jesus established, has established a new world order. The kingdom of God has come and is continually coming, and the evils that we experience in our lives do not have the ultimate power over us. So we return to the question of the world's guilt. What is the world guilty of? Well, my conclusion from this passage is that it's guilty of treason, of sedition. Treason because the spirit of the world is aligned with the wrong kingdom. Sedition because the spirit of the world works in a way that opposes God and his purposes in the world. That is the nature of the world's guilt. That the spirit of our culture is committed to and works in alliance with a lesser kingdom. And that spirit that is in opposition to God is the purveyor of the lie that the kingdom's worthy of pursuing is none other than the building of our own personal empires where we alone are chief and king and priest. And so the spirit of truth prosecutes the spirit of the lie with a case that is built on upon the clarity of the good news. That the issue of sin is relationship with God and Jesus. That the issue of righteousness is what Jesus as Lord has accomplished on our behalf. That the issue of judgment is that we live under the authority of God who has condemned evil. The spirit of truth confronts the spirit of lies with the good news. That there is another kingdom. There is a deeper, better truer and more enduring way, the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives his beloved community the spirit of truth. Here in verse 12, we pick it up. He says, I have much more to say to you, but you simply can't contain it all right now. So the spirit of truth is coming and he will guide you into all the truth. He will speak to you what you need to hear at the moment you need to hear it. He will take all that I have to give you and make it yours at the time you most require it. Jesus says he will not 
leave his disciples orphaned in this hostile world, but he'll equip them. He'll equip them for the difficult and challenging adventure that lies ahead. Yesterday, on that beautiful Saturday, uh, Kimber and I uh, spent most of the day at Green Lake, and we were spectators at the Great Green Lake Regatta. Our daughter, Maggie, is uh, on the Mount Baker rowing team, and so we were there on the banks of Green Lake taking that all in as spectators. It was an incredible uh, time. And it occurred to me as I was watching those uh, beautiful shells racing down the course that, that uh, the, the, the rowing team is an incredible metaphor for the spirit of truth working itself out in a community. Think about it. You've got these eight incredible athletes committing their energy and their strength to the oar and they're pulling and racing and working themselves down the course in the great race. And your total focus is on these eight great athletes in this contest. But you know, there's another person in that show. Almost inconspicuous. You really don't pay any attention to that ninth person, but that ninth person, we know who it is, it's a coxswain. And that ninth person has a voice. That ninth person speaks into that community of the committed and gives them cadence and rhythm and leads and guides them as they strain together as a community of the committed to win that race. What an incredible image of the spirit of truth working its uh, guidance and leadership and mission into a community. Well, Jesus promised his beloved community then, and he promises his beloved community now that his presence will abide with us. And that his mission in the world has become our mission in the world. We are co-missioned by and with Jesus. The Spirit's mission of calling the world out of their false kingdoms into the true kingdom is the mission of the believing community. This is our mission. To live in this world as a community of disciples who by the work of the Holy Spirit calls forth people out of the untruth of their kingdoms that they're entrapped in and into the freedom, the expansive freedom of the true kingdom of God where Jesus is Lord. And you know, the Holy Spirit is doing this in hundreds of different ways here in this body that we call UPC. Take, for instance, what we're doing right now, right here in the sanctuary. You know, when we gather in worship, we're confronting the powers. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, and maybe I'm ruining, ruining worship for you. But this is not only a spiritual gathering, but this is a political gathering. When we gather in this way centered on the person of Jesus Christ as Lord, we become a visible sign to the rest of the world that the kingdom of this world are not the king defining kingdoms of our lives. Let me say that again. The defining kingdoms of this world are not the defining kingdoms of our lives. There is a truer kingdom. And as we gather as a people and worship together, we are a community who reorient our lives around that deeper truth. But you know, we gather in innumerable other ways as the people of God. And these two are spirit of truth communities where we have 
opportunity to confront the world with good news. Think of all the small groups that are meeting in workplaces and neighborhoods throughout the metro Seattle area this week. These are Spirit of Truth communities where the Holy Spirit is speaking to and through one another as we together discern how we might engage or confront the world with good news. Kimber and I are, um, we've, we dove into a, a Lenten small group. You know, we reluctantly decided to, that we would host and facilitate because, reluctant because we weren't sure that we'd have the bandwidth for it. We're, like many of you, overcommitted. And yet I have been incredibly inspired by the Holy Spirit because of this group of eight strangers uh, that have come together out of our neighborhood and have begun walking together and how the Holy Spirit is speaking into our community. And my reluctance is being transformed into anticipation as I wonder about what is, what is the Spirit of God going to do with these eight folks in this neighborhood. It's an exciting time. I think of our, also of our missional communities. All of these various communities oriented around mission that are the leading edge of caring and compassionate ministry where the love of Jesus Christ becomes flesh in contexts of pain and suffering. We heard about it this morning with Camp Side by Side. The 80 volunteers that every summer uh, express the love of Jesus Christ in a community of pain and suffering. Our deacons, the Balkan Task Force, our Habitat for Humanity ministry team, our UPC HIV AIDS Task Force, on and on and on. There are missional communities all over through the life of this church that confront and engage the world with tangible demonstrations of the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, in a week's time, we'll be sending a community of high school students and their leaders to Tijuana to, be, uh, to build four homes for and with families who suffer the evils of poverty housing. The spirit of truth is on the move, guiding us in the mission of confronting the world with good news. This is an incredibly exciting time to be living in this world. Yes, there are enormous challenges. Yes, there is formidable opposition. Yes, there is suffering and pain and grief. But the spirit of truth is on the move, speaking and guiding us in his mission, confronting the world in all its untruth with the invitation to a love relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. Announcing that the kingdom of, at, is at hand, that Jesus is Lord, and that evil, no matter how seemingly powerful or intractable, doesn't in the end exercise the last word. The spirit of truth is on the move. Holy God, that is good news. And we receive it as good news, and we pray that your spirit might make our spirits attentive to that movement as you speak and guide and lead us in your mission. Holy God, do that. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.